Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, February 12th, 2024. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio. We've entered the final days of the 2024 30-day legislative session, and things are starting to get busy at the Roundhouse. In just a few minutes, I'll update you on some of the bills that we've been tracking. But please keep in mind, things will continue to change in the coming hours and days, so I've included links to those bills in the description of this podcast, as well as a link to Source New Mexico's database of legislation so you can make sure that you're up to date. Right now, let's get into some of the other headlines from around the state. A Las Cruces police officer was killed while responding to a trespassing call Sunday evening. Investigators say a suspect stabbed Officer Jonah Hernandez, killing him near the 300 block of South Valley Drive around 5 p.m. That suspect is a 29-year-old man, and he was shot dead by a witness who saw the incident unfold. Hernandez had served with the Las Cruces Police Department for two years and was one of 28 cadets to graduate from the academy in 2022. According to reporting from Source New Mexico, investigators have temporarily closed part of Valley Drive. Local leaders, including city councilors Joanna Bencomo and Cassie McClure, have given their condolences. That's as well as other agencies like the Santa Fe Police Department and the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office. We'll let you know when we learn more details about how this incident unfolded. Former Speaker of the House Brian Egolf and his wife Kelly are facing a lawsuit alleging a fraudulent scheme that cost investors nearly $4 million. That's what's alleged, anyway. The suit accuses Kelly Egolf, manager of New Mexico Fresh Foods and CEO of Verde Juice, of lying to investors while allegedly moving company assets to a different company called Invictus Unlimited. Investors say Kelly's statements were false and misleading, and that New Mexico Fresh Foods struggled financially, requiring bank loans. The lawsuit alleges the Egolfs used Invictus Unlimited to buy troubled assets of New Mexico Fresh Foods from the bank. The lawsuit calls for investors to be repaid for damages, attorney fees, and their investments to the company. Now back to the session. One bill we've been following since the start just made it through the upper chamber. House Bill 129 would create a seven-day waiting period when buying a gun in the state. The state Senate passed the bill Saturday night by a vote of 23 to 18. That's after the proposal made it through the House on February 2nd by a 37 to 33 vote. But since the Senate amended the bill, it must now return to the House so that they can agree on the changes before it lands on the governor's desk. This past week, correspondent Gwyneth Doland caught up with the bill's lead sponsor, Democratic Representative Andrea Romero. Representative Romero, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for your interest in this story. So the majority of gun owners in New Mexico are law-abiding citizens, right? Um, So wouldn't a seven-day waiting period for them to buy guns uh, be an infringement on their rights and an inconvenience to every single one of them to prevent uh, a small number of bad actors from committing crimes? Well, I think it's, firstly, it's not unconstitutional um, to have a temporary waiting period, um, in particular because we're trying to do a few critical things. One is that we are trying to close a loophole for those who haven't received a verified background check from our federal system um, and make sure that those folks do um, and have that waiting period in place to make sure that that background check is done. And two, this is a critical waiting period for those in a crisis. For those that might do harm to themselves or others, we believe seven days is a good enough buffer 
um, to really make sure that that person, should they be purchasing a firearm to harm themselves or others, can really have that cooling off period or that time to think about it. Yes, it could be inconvenient, um, to your second point. Uh, but we believe that if it could save a life, if it could um, ensure that somebody can make a better decision with that waiting period time, that this inconvenience is something um, as New Mexicans that we can live with. Well, let me ask you this. Why do we need a week to accomplish a background check? So part of the challenge that we have right now is not only what we learned during the pandemic when we had a backlog of background checks that hadn't come back, um, is that in a, the three-day period, um, which is the current waiting period for uh, an allowable time period to get a firearm, after three days, you can just receive that even if the background check hasn't come. Um, one of the challenges that we know in New Mexico, we're the most rural state in America. We have broadband connectivity issues. We're trying to make sure all of our law enforcement agents um, are talking to each other. And we're wanting this system to report back to each and every one of them the more time that we have to check and balance that entire process and flag anyone that could be purchasing a firearm after that three-day period, that they don't just simply receive it. So that critical waiting period ensures that those checks are in place. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has already signed into law a bill changing high school graduation requirements across the state. The governor signed House Bill 171 on Friday, updating those requirements for the first time in over a decade. One of the biggest adjustments is removing Algebra 2 as a required course for high schoolers. Gwyneth sat down with the bill's sponsor, Democratic State Rep. Andres Romero, to ask why and to understand what other changes will come with the bill. Representative Romero, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're a high school social studies teacher. New Mexico has some of the highest dropout rates in the country. But most of those who do drop out, two-thirds, do it before they hit Algebra 2. So why do we want to remove Algebra 2 as a requirement? How will loosening graduation requirements help us get better at education? Yeah, I don't think we're necessarily loosening graduation requirements. What we're adding is student flexibility and choice into each and every subject that our students take. Um, currently, we have a more restrictive model where students are taking classes, um, and our graduation um, requirements haven't been changed since 2007. So it's been a long time coming, but in each of those subject matter, students are able to um, pick a class that they are most interested in their math classes, in their science classes, in their social sciences. They're able to pick classes that are super um, important to them and that they feel that they have that autonomy and flexibility and to make school meaningful for themselves. Now, I'm going to confess a grave bias here in my reporting. I am hugely biased against Algebra 2, which I could, I barely, barely, barely passed. But I mean, shouldn't we be pushing students to achieve? Isn't there some value in learning those formulas? Yeah, so I think within Algebra 2, Algebra 2 is typically taken their junior year or beyond even senior year. Um, but a lot of the tests in the state that they don't require Algebra 2 um, and students tend to take those tests before even taking Algebra 2 as a class currently. Um, but we're not getting rid of Algebra 2 entirely, so it won't be a requirement for students anymore. But 
class schools are still required to have algebra 2 as part of of the classes that students can take so if you're on a pathway to go to college and you need to have an algebra 2 credit it'll still be offered um, but we're also adding career technical education and more applied learning for our students because when students one see the have flexibility and see themselves in the curriculum and two make it relevant for them so if they're not necessarily on a college pathway but a career pathway they can take math that is relevant to the career field that they're gonna be looking into and what does that look like for career and technical math what are we talking about so in a lot of, of trades it requires lots of geometry physics um, so it's very intensive and it's all uh, applied learning and we've also found through our studies throughout the years and looking at the research is that applied learning is that much more impactful at garnering student attention and and retention rates in terms of what they're learning they're better able to retain what they're learning Gwyneth also caught up with the sponsor of two alternative energy tax credit bills, Democratic Senator Benny Shendo of Jemez Pueblo. Senate Bill 315 would credit anyone who drives an electric vehicle, and SB 316 would create a tax credit for businesses that produce parts used in renewable energy projects, things like solar panels and wind turbines. Here's Gwyneth once more. Senator Shendo, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you for having me. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham has an ambitious climate agenda this session, and you are carrying some parts of that. You have one proposal that would uh, give tax credits for electric vehicles and charging stations. Critics call it the I-25 bill, saying it's really gonna help commuters between Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Why should the rest of this state bear the financial burden of tax breaks that help Albuquerque and Santa Fe? Well, I think one of the things that we're trying to do is make all of New Mexico, uh, you know, uh, electric, electrify all of New Mexico along all of our corridors because we are a tourist state. And I think many of these folks that have an opportunity to move out to or, or visit some of our rural areas, you know, need charging stations and hopefully identify some of our rural communities also investing electric cars. And I think that's an important piece. In fact, uh, I know there's EV station at Zuni Pueblo now. I know there's a EV station at Jemez Pueblo. And I think many of these areas also hopefully, you know, as we make that investment as a state, will not only serve the corridor of I-25 and I-40, but also the rural areas. And I think that's important. Another proposal would give tax credits for manufacturing components that go into wind and solar energy production. How much will this cost and what are we going to get for it? Uh, one, one of the things is what we're trying to incentivize, as you know, you know, the Biden administration is trying to onshore a lot of development, particularly solar energy and wind. And so this tax credit will allow, you know, companies to be able to take that advantage of that. And we're trying to mirror uh, the federal uh, law with, with ours as well. And so hopefully this will help, you know, uh, bring at least some of that manufacturing to New Mexico. Right now, the, uh, the bill has it at 25 million or 20%, whatever is less. And, and so that's the incentive that we have for, for the companies. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks as always to Gwyneth for her work at the Capitol during session. Now it's time for some more context. This past Friday on the show, I sat down with Source New Mexico editor Sean Griswold and Republican former state representative Justine Fox Young to discuss the fate of the governor's favored public safety bills, including the seven-day waiting period.
One piece of the governor's public safety package has made it through one chamber, but not without significant tweaks. Um, we heard Representative Andrea Romero just a little while ago talk about some background on House Bill 129. Initially, that would have required a 14-day waiting period to buy a gun. That's been cut to seven days. The amended bill uh, passed the House last week, 37 to 33. Its next stop is the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, Justine, why would a seven-day wait be a little bit more palatable for all lawmakers, regardless of political party, and is it foolish to think that Republicans would back any waiting period any amount of time? Well, I don't know. I don't know all the internal politics of what may happen in that committee. I understand that just recently um, the chair of the committee did try to run an amendment to take it back to 14 days and only pulled one other vote, and so I think that's off the table, um, and they are looking at a shorter waiting period. The complexity of the way the federal regulation already works is really important, and without getting into the technical details, um, there, I think Republicans will be motivated to work some of that out so that this is workable for the, the FFLs, for the, the folks selling these and, and licensing. One thing that I think gets lost in a lot of this and what, what some of the advocates are, are trying to push is that there is a common problem that happens when somebody goes in for a background check. And it's, imagine a Jose Martinez going in in New Mexico, very common name, maybe didn't put a middle initial or full name. That can get stuck the same way a lot of provisional uh, ballots get stuck. Just because, you know, there, there's not a hold on that person necessarily, but it's, it's unclear. Maybe there, there is a Jose Martinez for whom there's a hold. The problem is that if, um, ATF doesn't come back, if the NCIC doesn't come back with anything and three days have passed, that person ends up in sort of, as I understand it, a, a holding pattern. They can't purchase. They've got a background check that's good for 30 days and it will expire. And so what I think, um, what I think some of the advocates are trying to get legislators to understand is that there are people who can lawfully purchase guns, who should be able to purchase, who are going to get caught up in this mess and not be able to purchase which is a Second Amendment infringement if some details aren't fixed. I think the bill has a, it seems like it has a good chance of passing um, and, and has strong support, but they've got to work those details out or, you know, just regular citizens who should be able to buy guns are, are going to get caught up in it and, and they've got to make those fixes. And it sounds like people are hard working at the table to get that done. Okay, now along with that bill, Senate Bill 5 is rushing through chambers also. It's sponsored by a number of Democrats, including Majority Leader Peter Wirth. That bill would ban guns inside and around polling places on voting days. Now, the legislation received a near party line vote with all but one Democrat in favor. Sean, last year on the show, you talked about how New Mexico is a gun state regardless of political lines. Um, why are gun control bills faring better with Democrats in particular this session? I believe that you have more of a First off, there's a public safety matter, an issue here, and Democrats feel as if this is their priority to address public safety issues in the state. Let's regulate guns, let's figure out where the root problem is, and a lot of it is just guns and the accessibility towards guns. Do you think the root problem is in polling places? That's the issue on this part. This one is, seems to be one of those bills that is just targeted towards we're doing something to an issue that may not actually exist. However, if you're uh, signaling that we have passed a law that is going to, you know, enact some restrictions in public safety, public public spaces. That is something that you can campaign on. That's something you're gonna hear about if this does actually pass and become law, regardless of how effective or if it's actually causing any real problems, or sorry, sorry, preventing any true problems because we haven't seen any attacks of gun violence at a polling place. I can't think of any in any instances in New Mexico or across the country. Now, 
the so issue of polling boogeyman to attack there you go but also at the same time too when you do have individuals who are over the past we've seen over the past several elections the fear of guns at polling places of people bringing guns at polling places whether locally or nationally the presence even just outside of the zone is something enough that could be a boogeyman but is something that could potentially look to stop that is that effective i'm not quite sure but this one appears to be less controversial than the acquisition of guns because it seems to target people who already have weapons in a place. Understood. I will say the whole package, and I don't know if you've done any coverage on this uh, through Source and M, which does great work, but there are some real world impacts from this gun legislation, this package of gun legislation that, that are pretty serious. There was testimony from Calibers. Did you, were you present for this one? They said they're looking at building a multi-million dollar facility in Farmington, mm -hmm. went to the bank to get it funded, and the bank said no. Because of this array of legislation and because of the tone in Santa Fe and because we're worried about liability, there's a bill that would, would uh, institute, it's a trial lawyer feed bill, would institute liability for anybody in the chain of sale. Um, you know, if, if, they're, if a gun is fired, shoot somebody mm -hmm. and, and you know, wrongfully kill somebody, go after the manufacturer, the seller, Amazon, who gave, you, know, you bought a grip from, and on and on, they wouldn't fund the thing. And, and, and so, I mean, I think there are real impacts to the economy, to projects, to jobs that maybe get lost in all of this when we pick an easy boogeyman. I don't know if you looked at that, but um, there was committee testimony about that. You know, we, we can't proceed with this project, Farmington wants a Calibers, we can't get funded because of this debate and this package of legislation that mainly the governor's office is pushing. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting to understand the signal from business owners, gun owners, dealers, um, to say that now we're gonna be impacted by the economy. We've gone from Second Amendment rights violations, don't take my guns, I need to have this, to the point of now you're impacting my, my, my business, my livelihood. That to me signals a lot, not only that, do they view this package of gun legislation as being something that's likely gonna pass or move forward, but it's also signaling that they're now transitioning to a space a little bit more desperate than just the element of you're violating my second constitutional amendment. So to me that also shows that there is some fear from gun manufacturers and dealers knowing that Santa Fe is likely to pass many of these measures. Well, the tone is changing, and the, the tone will change when the governor comes out with an executive order saying, I don't care what the Constitution says. I'm going to concede right off that this package is unconstitutional, and my executive order is unconstitutional, but I want to move the debate on the issue. And I think that's what you're seeing. Of course, the and, and, with, and that, all that is also happening simultaneously with the state, you know, the roundhouse measure, enacting their own state measures, this thing of the governor's executive order is still playing out in federal court. Yeah, plenty to still talk about on guns, and we'll see how all that plays out. Um, now I want to shift to another uh, bill that we have talked about quite a bit on this show and something that the governor's been pushing for years now. Um, Senate Bill 122 would have created the so-called rebuttable presumption in pretrial detention. That failed. It got tabled last week. The governor now has introduced, or through uh, Senator Daniel Ivey Soto, Senate Bill 271. Um, she says it represents a compromise. It would force courts to lock people up accused of new felony crimes while out on jail awaiting trial on a previous felony case. 271 has not come up for a vote yet, and just like rebuttable presumptions, it's raising some red flags about potential constitutional violations. Justine, um, does that bill have a chance to make it, do you think? And what about those questions over constitutionality? It's my understanding the bill's tabled, 
and has rightfully drawn a lot of opposition because I think it is patently unconstitutional as it's, as it's written. For people to understand what this really looks like or would look like if it were, if it were implemented, the bill says that once somebody's flagged by the court as, as having picked up you know, a felony, they can sit in jail indefinitely, regardless of the circumstances, until the court has a hearing. It violates the Constitution. It violates common sense. It's unworkable. And so I, yeah, I think there's a general understanding from almost everybody, except perhaps the fourth floor, that it's not workable. What but about the, the current standard of someone who is out on bail or bond after being uh, charged with a felony? They have conditions of release. They go and are charged with another felony. So does it yeah. not already? Well, under current law and the current rules, certainly that, that's addressed. And okay. um, we have a system in place in New Mexico to address pretrial detention for somebody under those circumstances. And we have a rule in place that provides for it. I mean, Senator Ivy Soto knows that. I, I don't know why this is being pushed other than, again, you know, you've got a governor who wants to run out and say she's doing something about the crime problem. There's no chance this bill is going to pass the way it's drafted. And, and, and if it were to pass, it would draw such significant litigation and cost the state so much money to fight it because it, it's patently unconstitutional that, I mean, it's, it's nonsense. Um, that's the danger of having a governor who comes out right off and says, you know, I'm pushing for this and I know it violates the Constitution. That's a, the position that she's taken on the gun legislation. That's the position that she's taken on her executive order. That's the position she's taken on pretrial detention. It's, I, I've never seen it. I mean, Richardson, you know, he, he pushed a lot of stuff. He pushed a lot of legislation in a 30-day session. I don't recall him ever doing that. Um, she's a lawyer. This governor is a lawyer, and, and, and she knows better. Um, so, no, it's not going to pass. Okay. Now, uh, to Justine's point about the governor wanting to do something, is, is that what you see here? I mean, it's been three years of her trying to push a pretrial detention change, um, and she's in her mind, lessened it a little bit, moving away from the rebuttable presumption. But why doesn't this idea seem to die, even with the, um, the, the lack of support from Peter Worth? It's a measure that apparently people from both sides of the parties, or political, whatever, whatever political party you are, people feel as if they want to keep safe from criminals. And that's something that I think has some popular support bought broadly from the public. But then you get to the constitutional issues that the public doesn't quite understand and the nuances of this that ultimately does kill these bills. I'm not really quite sure exactly why it continues to be presented as well in, in its current form. I don't think it also is going to pass. One thing I will signal on that is because we are in a budget session, we have seen various agencies, you know, CYFD, um, Department of Health, within some of their budget requests, they're also asking for a little bit more money that can help for potential lawsuit settlements that are happening. Now, to your point of if this bill were to pass, the state would anticipate, obviously, some lawsuits coming forward from it. I'm not seeing anything with any budget requests that would prepare the state for any pending litigation on this case, which tells me that also is not going to pass. Regardless of the timeliness and the constitutional questions of it all, you're not going to be able to figure out the constitutionality of this in six days. Even though that's a lifetime in Santa Fe, I still don't think that's going to happen with that part and make it through both chambers as well. But none of that seems to have deterred the governor. No. I mean, you saw in incredible skepticism from our Supreme Court justices as to her executive order on the gun ban. And yet, I mean, it has not slowed her down. And so I, I do think that there, is a, there are pragmatic folks in the agency saying, we're not going to be able to pay these litigation costs if, if this were to pass. And, mm -hmm. and, and they're right. Yeah. Uh, another bill with some uh, 
constitutional concerns that have been raised is Senate Bill 248 that would essentially ban panhandling, um, punching both the person asking for money and the person giving the money. Um, what are the concerns on this bill? And do you think they're valid? Long list. Yeah, yeah. I mean, chief among them is the, the First Amendment to the Constitution. You know, it's protected speech. And a, a bill of this nature would have to be so narrowly tailored and, and really walk carefully through that in order to pass this one isn't, it's not going anywhere. Can you describe exactly how to tailor that? It seems like they're trying to point in on where these interactions are happening on a public street, on a corner, um, in an area that maybe the median's a little bit more narrow than somewhere else. Um, is there a valid route that way? As a policy matter, I don't think there's a valid route. And I don't think it's a good use of our um, taxpayer time and money. But, but yes, I mean, there's been a lot of litigation in this area. And um, there's a recent uh, opinion, I think, by Judge Browning, the federal court, with regard to the city ordinance. Um, and yes, it has to be very narrowly, narrowly tailored in terms of where it applies and how it applies. This bill doesn't do that. Um, and I, I think, as drafted, would penalize you know anybody who wanted to give a dollar to somebody on a street corner. Is that really what our legislators should be doing and where they should be focusing their attention as a policy matter? And again, another proposal that seeks to appeal to people who may not traditionally be on the governor's side, but we're saying we're doing something to address your concerns. And so, but the constitutional question at the very beginning of this is what's gonna stall this bill? This is another one that would be immediately challenged if it were to be passed. And what's interesting about it too is it's slid in another bill. It's kind of hidden in a lot of senses. And if you're not reading all the text of a bill, you might actually miss this one. I appreciate you both for this discussion. We'll be watching all of those pieces of legislation as the clock ticks closer to noon Thursday when the session officially ends. Now, in the second part of my discussion with Source NM editor Sean Griswold and Republican former state representative Justine Fox Young, I ask why the governor's public education goals are receiving bipartisan pushback from lawmakers who represent small school districts. Representative Derek Lente of Sandia Pueblo. He introduced uh, House Bill 134 this session. It would create a tribal education trust fund and a task force to oversee how money distributed is distributed to the state's 23 tribes. Pueblos and nations. Um, we anticipate that's going to be up for a floor vote later today as we tape this on Thursday morning. Um, Sean, how is this bill being received by elected officials, the governor, and the Navajo Nation Council? Yes, um, it came into the session, broad support. It's passed every committee up to this point unanimously. It's a direct response to the Yazi Martinez lawsuit mandating education reform. It looks to build um, and provide investments for tribal education departments specifically which a lot of people don't know that many tribes here run their own tribal education departments here. So the model is designed to put in $50 million into a trust, then you take 5% of that annually and then distribute that to the tribes. Where it stalled last year, this is the fourth year that's been presented, where it stalled last year was concerns from the Navajo Nation about equity. There was no direction as to how much money each tribe would receive. The concern from the Navajo Nation comes from the fact that they do have a higher population of native students in New Mexico, more than any other tribe in the state. So of course their idea is we deserve more funding from this model. Now that has somewhat been addressed in this current version of this bill. There's a current amendment that would design a task force that has considered equitable representation from the Navajo Nation, Pueblos, and Apache tribes um, that would then design the funding model that would provide equal amount of distribution to all these tribal schools. Um, when the session started, again, had unanimous support from everybody. In its second committee, Navajo Nation President Boone Nigren um, had a representative um, um, 
give a presentation to the committee and testify that he has withdrawn his support. So the Navajo Nation government currently no longer supports the measure as is. This is the president's office and this is the council's office. Now this doesn't include other members of the Navajo Nation who have a, continue to support the measure. It does have support from Navajo people, but at, as of this moment, the, the bill is sitting in limbo with the Navajo Nation government not in support. Okay, and is it still over those equity concerns? It's over the equity concerns as to how much money the Navajo, Navajo students would receive. Okay. Yes. Okay, now in a letter to the All Pueblo Council of Governors, uh, Governor Michelle Lujan, Grisham asked whether the members appointed prioritized a $50 million tribal capital package or the $50 million tribal education trust fund that you just mentioned, or both of those things. Um, that council responded, frustrated that they were asked to choose between education and infrastructure. Um, what have you gleaned from your reporting? In, is it possible for both to be fully funded and approved? Or is the go governor showing her hand here that she would only support one of those two? The um, tribal, the house fund, the, sorry, the uh, tribal education trust fund that Lenti proposes is part of the house budget that is passed. So there's fifty million dollars currently in the budget um, that is that is making it way that making its way through that would fund the trust fund. There's another fifty million dollars for capital outlay projects on infrastructure needs for tribal schools. Um, those are both there in the budget. So whether or not the governor is going to support that with the line item veto, that's going to ultimately be her decision. But in the response that she was that in her request to the uh, all Pueblo Council of Governors asking them, please pick or choose one of these, they basically told her no. Why are we going to determine between our kids and the infrastructure needs that we also need? So why can't we have both? So the governor doesn't have support from tribes on that measure. And if she were to do that, it would just ultimately create more um, distress between the governments that exist in New Mexico. Now, as legislators scramble in this last week to debate hundreds of bills, um, the governor's ambitious agenda that she put forward, Justine, we have to ask, will this workload 700 pieces of legislation put forward, uh, or close to it, um, is that sustainable for a 30-day session? I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think it benefits anybody. I mean, you know, traditionally, the governor is the agenda setter in terms of determining what is germane and the, that's how the law works. Um, and, but that, that requires that the governor has some discipline. The governor's office has some discipline and it's really hard to do because there, is, there are so many areas that need attention and so many legislators that wanna introduce bills on behalf of their constituents. So I, I don't think it helps her um, in, because the agenda is so far flung that it, it, it's hard to focus on anything. And, and I think it does become unmanageable. It is the legislative process, you know, a, a lot of measures are doomed to be tabled or die early on in, in that kind of setting. And so it, it works itself out, but it, it becomes pretty chaotic and disorganized if you're trying to address too much in a budget session. Okay. Now, it's not just the increase in the number of bills being introduced during short sessions, it's also their complexity. And the trend, of course, resurrects the ongoing conversation about paying lawmakers, giving them staffers, um, something that we've referred to and others have referred to as modernization uh, quite a bit. Now, Gwyneth Dolan asked Senator Pete Campos about that idea this week. Um, we'll play it for you now and get your reaction. It seems like the legislation has gotten more complicated too, especially this session. We've, we've just been talking about some green energy bills, things like that. Um, you know, there are proposals up here to pay lawmakers, to pay staff, and to lengthen the sessions. What do you think is necessary? What do you need in order to do the job of today? So very quickly, I represent all the parts of seven counties. 36 incorporated, unincorporated communities, all are parts of 26 school districts, 14,500 square miles. But that's the citizen legislature, and that's the way I was brought up in this process. So as I deal with it, 
my focus is to continue that one-on-one -on -one relationship with people in the district. So when it comes to a paid legislature, right now that's something that I don't support. But I bring that up because today's legislators really want to ensure that they can deliver the services that are necessary, which have become more enormous. And the reason they've become that, because our legislation, our lives are so much more complex. Anytime you go into modernization, anytime you see larger pools of people that are dealing with issues, we have so many things from homeless all the way to addiction. Those kind of things necessarily uh, do have to be, be covered. And so as we go forward, the whole issue is how can we continue to create the balance so that rural and frontier New Mexico continues to receive services just as well as the urban areas in our state. Would a paid staff member assigned to your district help you do that? I believe so. However, I have gotten accustomed to doing the traveling from one community to another, from Las Vegas to Raton or to Amalia, all the way down to Vaughn, Santa Rosa. And so in it, this is what I'm accustomed to. This is my service to people, and this is what I love. So right now I would say I continue to go ahead and do that on my own, and I enjoy it. Now, Justine, what's your reaction to Senator Campos's position on modernization? And is there something to what he said about being able to drive around, speak with his constituents, and the risk of making things a little bit more impersonal in a paid setting? Or is that a flawed premise? Well, I think there's always been a certain charm and efficacy to a citizen legislature and the idea behind that. And it's something New Mexico's hung on to for a long time. You know, you, you want to have membership, you want to have legislators who actually run a payroll, who actually work in the community, who, you know, are, are involved and engaged. I don't know if the time has come for a change. It's a hard evolution to make. Um, I think there are a number of concerns, including Senator Campos's, uh, you know, about how disconnected people may become. Um, there's a concern that, you know, Legislators are effectively going to have paid campaign staff year-round, you know, working on the public dime and, and what that will look like. Um, in a big geog geographically large state like this, we have everybody congregated in Santa Fe. I think there is a, a risk that you lose that connection. Um, and so I think there's a lot to, to what he's saying. And, and you know, he's, he's, Senator Campos has witnessed this transition. At the end of the day, whether or not the public is gonna buy modernization, which is, you know, kind of a euphemism for paying the legislature, I doubt. Now, modernization, it would include or the idea includes several things, and, and there could be individual steps taken at different times, like lengthening to 60-day sessions each um, year as opposed to having a 30-day, then a 60-day, paying staff uh, as opposed to paying lawmakers first. It, there have been talks about gradual progression of these things. How do you see this, Sean? There would be incredible benefits to understand what's happening in the roundhouse. I mean, covering it for 30 days is like drinking out of a fire hose, and so for us who, as journalists who will spend you know, up to 14 hours a day in the building, you still don't know what's going on all the time and you're still sort of in this controlled method of just grabbing onto the chaos. So for a general person who doesn't track or isn't a lobbyist or a lawmaker or has no interest, just a New Mexico taxpayer, I think it would make things a little bit more understandable as we see a slower process because if it were to evolve into a longer session, into you know, more competent staff, perhaps even providing a, a better professional class of either policy individuals who could work on you know, these serious topics as they do during the interim, but having them being able to like a full-time position throughout the year, I think would, would benefit ultimately. But again, you have to sell this to voters. You have to sell this to the New Mexico public. And that is the problem with this idea of modernization is I don't necessarily see 
a voter who has known this, this lawmaker, more, you know, most lawmakers are retired, prominent individuals in their community, some of the more you know, wealthiest or legacy individuals in that space, and now you're asking their neighbor who doesn't make as much money as them, who may never make as much money as them, you're asking them to now pay me more money to go do this job. Well, it could evolve and create places for individuals to, um, who don't have the, the funds or the, the, the retirement or the wealth to be able to go volunteer as a lawmaker every year. Um, I think that the issue is still you're not pitching this to New Mexicans in the way that is ultimately going to come down to wallets in the pockets of why am I giving them more money when I already feel as if they may not be representative of me already. We'll wait and see on that one. Mm -hmm. um, now, back to education briefly. The original House budget includes a proposal to withhold funding from schools that uh, did not meet the new 180-day school year requirement set by the governor, mm -hmm. um, or if that school operated on a four-day week. A Republican-backed amendment would counter that proposal, uh, allowing four-day school weeks for smaller school districts that want them. Um, 17 Democrats support the amendment, and it was passed by the House last week. Why are Republicans pushing for four-day school weeks to remain in smaller districts, and why is it receiving bipartisan support? This is about local control with school districts, and this is about, you know, you can either track it on a, a calendar year by days, which is 180 days, which is what the governor wants, or by hours. And that's the current model that we have set up, and that's the status quo that these local districts want to maintain. For them, a four-day work week works in a number of ways. The arguments we hear for it for rural districts, and this is where you bring in rural Democrats and support for it, is some of our communities are, are big and wide and it takes three hours round trip for, to get a kid to go to school. We have community events that happen, you know, on, on a Friday that allows us to, you know, that, that engage students in, in stuff they're learning in school, but we do it in our own way that either whether it's farming or maybe even some traditional ceremonial elements you see with some local tribal schools. Um, but that's where it is, is that you're connecting now rural districts in a way that says we want to direct how we educate our students in a way that is meeting our community needs and hopefully giving them more success because that's also something we've seen proven with education reform. The more you localize your schooling, the more successful your kids are going to be. Um, and that's why people are coming together for it. Yeah, this is not a partisan issue. This is an issue that highlights how ineffective the public education department is, I think, at administering services statewide. and at. Um, meeting the needs of these small rural districts. And, and that's why you see Democrats coming on. It's, it is an urban rural issue. It is maybe a native issue in some respects, as you, know, as you allude to, but it is not a partisan issue. And you know, the governor is trying, PED is trying to maintain control of this and, and maintain a very bureaucratic regulatory environment and, and sort of impose this on these smaller districts. And it, it's really not workable. Is, is there a way that the current system could exist currently with, uh, while giving a little bit more local control, just kind of loosening the grip on some of these requirements? Is that possible? I'm, I'm certain that it is, yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's a give and take. But you know, the, the administration, I think, should listen closely to these very good arguments. You know, we can't pay for custodians five days a week. We, don't want, we can't pay bus drivers five days a week. Kids are sitting on buses for four extra hours under this scheme and, and really give credence to those arguments and, and try to work something out that, that works as well in JAL as it works in, in Albuquerque. But that's why local control is, is really preferred here and that's why it's not partisan. And to that local rural divide, uh, excuse me, local urban and rural issue, 
local school districts can point to their students achieving at a greater rate, higher at higher uh, graduation rates, some higher reading levels, better at math, than they can then some of the uh, urban schools can. So they're like, our models are working for us. They're working for our students. Why are you making a shift into this thing that might work for Albuquerque or Farmington schools, but is not going to apply for us? And that's another argument that I think you're also seeing with a lot of um, rural school districts. Okay. Now, Sean, sticking with you, um, we wanted to highlight Source New Mexico's coverage, uh, specifically uh, how you've covered exactly what's up for in the legislature. Uh, you published an article recently called Germane in the Membrane. Nice work. Um, that tracks the status of every bill introduced at the Roundhouse. And in, as mentioned in the highlight, um, and as mentioned by Justine, Germain applying to whether or not the governor has called for this topic to come up. Mm -hmm. um, you're clearly taking a different approach to this. What's behind that? Yeah, so um, the, the major element behind this, as I mentioned earlier, when we're covering this, it's trying to drink out of a fire hydrant. And there's so many distractions. There's so many, you get pitched on so many different proposals. Um, we really wanted to design our coverage around what is working, what's moving, what has support, and try to estimate what that is. Now, when you spend the entire interim session, which is an entire year, you see a lot of these legislative proposals develop over the course of a year. You see the broad support that happens during the interim. So that was number one. We're like, okay, what was presented in the interim? What's working? And since it's the budget session, now we can understand budget requests from various agencies that were presented last year, what's going to come back and how's it going to match with the governors, the LFCs, and, the, and then you know, the legislature's budget. It's ultimately, our goal as, as, a, as a news organization is to provide as much accurate and clear news on policy wonky topics that are it's really hard to understand. Even for us, being in that building 14 hours a day, we still come out of it trying to figure out the confusion. So for a reader who doesn't have that time or just is looking at a news story, our goal is to provide them, here's where it is, here's what's happening, and this is what's likely moving. So we're not wasting our time and resources on stories and bills that might garner a headline, might be big news, might even get some national attention, but ultimately, once they're introduced, they just fall flat and fart. So that was the goal, prioritize our resources so we're covering what matters, and also just trying to keep sanity in the chaos. I think that having fun with the puns there came directly from our reporter, Danielle Prokop, Patrick Lohman, who when we were like, please go understand what germane means, fell themselves into this deep rabbit hole of, well, nobody really kind of understands what it means other than that this is what this is, can be a priority piece of legislation. Um, I really got to give credit to those two reporters, Austin Fisher, another great reporter, Megan Taros, individuals who are following these like major complex topics, some of them for over a year, um, and trying to relate them in a way that makes sense. So that's ultimately our goal, is we want our reporting and the policy decisions happening there to make sense to everybody. And that's our, our effort with that. And within that germane article, we have a searchable database of all legislation that's germane, telling you where it's at, where it's going. Um, the legislature doesn't have a searchable list, so we built that out to provide an easier access for readers to what's happening in the Roundhouse. Yeah, that has been incredibly helpful. Um, have you gotten any feedback? Has it been working? Have you been um, engaging different populations that normally don't have uh, deep involvement in the legislative session? This year in particular was very surprising to see the reach that Source New Mexico has. This is uh, our third legislature that we've covered, so we're fairly new again, starting in 2021. But the very first day there's a media breakfast and you see all the, all the media, media scrum there. And even if they're not working for us, there's several people that, like we were the majority in the room. 
Then you get outside and you start talking to either to lawmakers or to people who are to the general public visiting. They read our publication. They read Source New Mexico. They know what we're about. So that to me tells me that we're doing something right if people are reading us and recognizing our work. Well, you're keeping long form journalism alive at a time when people go to Yahoo News for the three second clip, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. it's incredible work that Thank you're you. doing. And it's local. Yeah, and it's still digestible with that list. So <laughs> I commend you on all Thank that. Thank you. Thanks for listening this week. Be sure to check out the links to the bills that I talked about on the pod in the description. You can also find a link to Source New Mexico's database of legislation so you can make sure that you're up to date. You can also stay informed by following our pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube throughout the week. You can give us feedback or just stay up to date as we post previews and news items leading up to our show on Friday night. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, February 12th, 2024. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.